0: If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to go through verse 19. It'll be the second week looking at this text, and uh, we're getting to the end of Peter's letter uh, that is written to Christians that have been suffering and persecution, uh, Christians whose circumstances uh, are difficult, Christians that are going to be tempted to believe that God is not good, great, and wise in light of their present suffering. And this is what Peter says to them. Beloved... Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. this word to the suffering church is so practical in fact last week we had these little cards we have them in the back if you if you didn't get one last week grab one this week and this is just a summary of the notes that you have the the nine points that this text brings out to help us remember what God says in light of our suffering. This card not only reminds us how God calls us to suffer, but it also reminds us that if we live a godly life, we will suffer. And so put this in your wallet, keep it with you, let it be a question to you. How am I suffering by bearing the name of Christ? Because we can avoid that sort of suffering if we fly under the radar as Christians. So be sure to grab one of these if you didn't get one last week. But as we come again to look at this text, I want to remind us that we will not suffer well naturally. Nobody naturally suffers well. No one in their fallen nature will ever suffer well. We must supernaturally suffer well only by Holy Spirit-empowered truth, enlightened truth through God's Word attached to supernatural faith created by the Holy Spirit will allow us to suffer in a way that will glorify God. And the reason why it's not natural is because we are not like God naturally Isaiah 55, eight says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways. My ways declares the Lord for as high as the heavens are as higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Well, how high do the heavens, how, how high does the universe go above the earth? Well, that's the distance between the way God thinks and the way we think naturally. His ways are different. And He's sovereign, and what He chooses to do is different than what we would choose to do. So if we're ever going to suffer supernaturally, we have to let God give us our worldview. we got to let God define the meaning of our suffering while we're on this earth. In Psalm 50, verse 21, the psalmist writes, these things you have done, pointing out the sins of Israel, and I have been silent. You thought, that I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. He says, here's your mistake, Israel. You were sinning and I was silent for a while and you thought I was like you, but that was your mistake and now judgment is coming. Israel's mistake is our mistake when we go according to our wisdom. We think God is like us. He must think how I think. If He's good, great, and wise, then He would do what I would do because I know what's good and I know what's great and I know what's wise. And yet when we suffer, we doubt God on those three accounts because we failed to remember that He is different. We're shocked. We're surprised when suffering comes. In Lamentations 3.37, we read, who is spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. It's a statement of God's sovereignty. Anything that happens has been commanded by God in His sovereignty. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins? And so we are reminded that we are not God. God is God. The circumstances we so often complain about, we forget are. Sovereignly ordained for the good of those who love Him. Our bitterness and our anger often rises uh, not because God is not glorified, not because uh, His glory is not held up, but rather this circumstance has encroached my kingdom. And I want my will to be done in my kingdom. where so often, we so often forget that the universe doesn't revolve around us, but that we exist for the glory of God. And uh, this week, uh, there was an asked Pastor John John Piper has this podcast where people get at can ask him a question and he'll give a uh, eight to twelve minute answer on whatever question comes in. And the question that came in was a young man that is reading through the Bible for the first time. And his question is, is why is God why why is the Bible so violent? And he said, I'm to to the point of judges, and I wouldn't even let my children read this, my teenage children. Why is God in his scripture so violent? And Piper gave three reasons. He says the violence of judges, the chapter this young man was reading, exists to show what happens when the river of human evil is not dammed up by civil authority. Because the drumbeat of what's said in Judges is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so the evil that's talked about and discussed in Judges is an example to us of what the world would be like without civil authority ordained by God. In that particular instance, there was no king in Israel. There was no authority there. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And you even see a father give his daughter over to be raped, being cut up into pieces to be sent to the tribes of Israel and we read it and we can hardly believe what our eyes see. He said, secondly, the futility and corruption of creation exists to give us some idea of the horror of sin against God. And one of the things Piper said is he said, most people will not lose sleep over their rebellion against the throne of God in their sin but they'll become morally outraged when they get diagnosed with cancer. You see, that's when our emotions rise up. But God cursed the earth and our bodies and all of creation when Adam and Eve sinned because He's a loving God. Those things are lovingly put into our life to make us ask the question, why are things like this? And it takes us back to sin against God in the garden. And we're reminded that what sin deserves is death. And the question is not, how can God be Loving and allow us to suffer. The question ought to be, how come God allows us to remain alive after we sinned once? And so our bodies remind us every day about our sin. And about what's wrong with the world. It's like flashing red lights saying, is there a savior? Is there hope? If God hated this world, he would let you have a perfectly easy life. He would, he would let the lost world just have total pleasure and never have to ask the question, what's wrong? And the third thing he says, as he says, the most egregiously violent act in history, namely the cross, exists to save us and to show us the love of God. And he said the most violent act that's ever been done on this earth was done to God's own Son. Why is the Bible so violent? And one of the things Piper said is, if you were God and you had a creation to rule over, you could decide what's best. But God, in His ultimate wisdom, for His ultimate glory, if He's going to show mankind what His justice looks like, what His love looks like, it culminates by the slaughter of His own Son on the cross that shows us how just God is in punishing sin, even his own son, and the incredible extent of his love that would even give his own son. So your Bible is not four or five simple encouragements for your day. Your Bible describes the world the way the world is with the only hope that there is and that hope is found only in Christ. Great podcast. Download it on your phone and listen to it. So, last week, We looked at when we suffer, remember that you are loved. Don't miss the first word. He says, beloved, is how he begins the text. We often complain and become bitter in our suffering because we forget that God loves us in Christ. The second point we looked at, when you suffer, do not be surprised. And the reason why we're surprised is we would expect God to do things the way we would do it. And yet God in His ultimate wisdom knows what's best. And that, do not be surprised. It's it's actually working for a good. It's testing us. You don't know if your faith is supernatural faith unless your faith is tested and proves itself to be really odd. A type of faith that can rejoice and trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances. God loves us so much that He serves up testing. Eternity is forever. And what a grace to know that my faith is of the supernatural character type of faith that only can be given in the new birth and that we have it. You can't have that joy apart from suffering. And then we looked at when you suffer, rejoice for greater future joy awaits. Rejoice in the middle of the suffering because as your faith remains clinging to Christ, it's a guarantee that in a very short order, whether Christ returns today or you go to see Him when you die, it's going to go good for you. We can rejoice today knowing it's going to go good for us then. And then we looked at, when you suffer, rejoice for you are blessed with Christ-like glory. The Spirit of glory rests upon us, which is the purpose of our life. You realize that when we suffer in faith and we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while we're suffering, it is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ that is on display. And the purpose of your life and the purpose of my life is to be an image bearer, to to shine the light of our creator. We're to be conformed into the image of Christ, which will be perfected one day when Christ returns or we go see him. And so this week we're picking up at point five that says when you suffer, ask yourself, is it, as an evil doer. Not all suffering brings glory to Christ in the same way. Because we can suffer by, because of our sin. The discipline of the Lord, which is actually also for our good, as He punishes us, not under his wrath, but as a father disciplines a child, comes upon us often because of our sin. Sometimes you'll suffer because you're shining the glory of Christ to a world that hates that. It's an aroma of death to those who are yet converted. And glory and rejoice when you're suffering that way. But there's another way we can suffer. We can suffer as a murderer. A murderer can get life in prison or the death penalty, or a thief, or an evildoer, more general term. Or here's a very specific term as a meddler. Now, I did some research on that word. What is a meddler? I just assume that this word is going to kind of convict us all. Because I'm guessing we can all suffer as a meddler. It's interesting. The word in the RSV is translated mischief maker. Don't suffer as a mischief maker. The King James Version, it's a, as a busybody. New King James is troublesome, or NASB is troublesome meddler. Others have suggested that it, it, it should be translated don't suffer as a revolutionary or an embezzler. But a meddler is one who busies himself in the affairs of others in an unwarranted manner often we can be mischief makers who did what who they did really oh that's terrible i would never do that did you hear what so and so did did you hear what this person said did you well which side are you on who's right pastor a or pastor b you know let's just let's just do this all day long getting everyone's business all the time And churches often suffer. And people suffer because of their meddling or their sin. You know, a husband might be frustrated with his sex life and yet ignores a pornography problem which causes a man to view a woman as a selfish tool to, for my own selfish goodness. And I wonder why my relationship is not close and intimate and producing joy. And so when we're suffering, ask yourself the question, pray like David prayed, is there any way with, within me, Lord, that is offensive to you, that is in rebellion to you. And I'm going to tell you, there's always some sin in our life. There's always a need to have other brothers and sisters in Christ come and help us consider is my circumstances partly because of my own rebellion. So really, really practical what Peter's getting at here. If you want to read more about suffering for sin, Hebrews 12.3 talks about uh, 12.3-11, you know, God disciplines those whom He loves. You're not a son if you're without discipline. And the Lord often disciplines us in our sin. But then, let's just be honest, a tornado hitting your house or a hurricane or an earthquake is a different type of evil in the world. That's natural evil that isn't necessarily, you know, what did I do yesterday? My my house got knocked down because I sinned. How? That type of natural evil ought to send us back to Genesis and ask ourselves, why do things like this happen? It points to sin in general, the problem with the whole sinful race. So question five is meant to cause us to evaluate our life. And then look at point six. When you suffer, do not be ashamed, but rather glorify God. Verse 16 says if anyone suffers as a Christian, this is this is in, in uh, opposition to verse 15, where a person suffers as an evildoer, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, the first time Christians were called Christians, uh, was in Antioch, in Acts 11.26, we read, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. People that bear the name of Christ because of their message and because of their life. A faithful Christian has both things. A faithful member at Sovereign Grace Church that is not under discipline, is holding true to doctrine and a life that's in step with the gospel of Christ. That's what glorifies God. The true gospel and a life that lives in light of that true gospel. And when we suffer as a Christian... We ought to glorify Him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, your suffering as a Christian is not brought upon you for your own sake. Your suffering as a Christian is not brought upon you for your own sake from from the idea of the one oppressing. You are partners with the great seed of the woman. You are confederates with Christ you must not think the devil cares much about you. The battle is against Christ in you. And this is Jesus telling his disciples, hey, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. If you suffer as a Christian, don't take it personal. There's been a battle ever since the Garden of Eden between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And when you bear the name of the seed of the woman. Don't be surprised that the seed of the serpent strikes at you and persecutes you. Rather, glory in the fact that you are a part of the seed of the woman in Christ. You are the people of faith in the line of Abraham and his faith, as opposed to those who do not obey God. To not be ashamed is a common charge given to Christians in the New Testament. Here's how Jesus said it in Mark 8, 34. He said, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed, there's that word, of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed, Are of Him the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father and holy angels. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you're ashamed before an adulterous and sinful generation, imagine a group of people here, And if you're ashamed to bear the name of Christ because they're going to reject you, he says, beware, because when I come in the glory of all the angels, now that's different, sinful, adulterous generation on one side, Christ coming as a king in all glory with the angels on the other side, He says, if you want to not be ashamed in front of them, know that I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come in this glory. You see, you put in those terms and only the fool would fear the rejection of the sinful adulterous generation in light of facing their creator facing Christ the King, we ought never be ashamed before our peers for the name of Christ. But you will be if you don't have the second coming in your mind. If you don't let your imagination, imagine what the glory of the angels look like. That's what faith does it believes the promises of the second coming, and when that's in our minds, then we can suffer and rejoice and not be ashamed, but be thankful that our faith can endure. Here's how Paul says it: Second Timothy one eight. Therefore. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as his prisoner. You know, oh, you're one of, you're a follower of the Lord and Paul who's in prison. He says, don't be ashamed of that, but share in suffering. See the invitation here? But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of god that's key because if you try to share in the suffering of christ in your own strength you'll fail you have a supernatural gospel that has power to bring people from the from the dead you have supernatural warfare against you from satan and his demons And you need supernatural power to suffer and share in that suffering willingly. But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. You weren't saved because you were better than your neighbor. It was because of the purpose of His grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the world, before the ages began. That's proof that it wasn't according to your works. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then He says, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Paul's saying, I was appointed. I was given a job. I'm to preach the gospel. I'm to bear the name of Christ. I'm, I'm to tell people what God says about their sin and what God has done in light of their sin so that they can be saved. I'm to command repentance and faith. He says, for, I, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. See, Paul's not a little baby complaining about his suffering because he attaches his suffering to the job he was given to do, which is bear the name of Christ and preach the gospel. And then he says, which, which I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed For I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. You see that? What's been entrusted to Paul? The gospel. Being faithful to Christ. And he says, I'm convinced that he is able to help me stand. Paul is not doing this in his own strength, but he's doing it by his confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, so you say, Sam? You want me to stand up in my workplace? You know, to to the, to the one in the cubicle right next to me? You really want me to tell him what I believe and tell him about the hope that is in Christ? I can't do that. Amen. 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 Paul couldn't do that, but he was convinced that he is able through the power of the Spirit to help you not only say true things about Christ, but to also endure the suffering that may come from that testimony and being faithful to what's been given to us. And the famous Romans one sixteen right? "'For I'm not ashamed of the gospel,' For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah, but they're going to kill you, Paul. Yeah, I know. He's already conquered death though. Christ has already conquered death. The way Spurgeon says it is we're all members of the body of Christ, Christ being the head. And if the head is above water, he's already resurrected, then the body's okay. The body's not going to drown if the head is above water. And why would I be ashamed of the gospel if no one can be saved apart from it and Christ has already conquered death? So Paul was able to suffer for Christ because God helped him. There's two types of people in the world. Those, when Christ returns, will shrink back and, and be ashamed. And those who will say, this is what I was waiting for. This is my hope. And we, we see this in Hebrews 10. And he's, the writer of Hebrews is reminding people who have lost their homes because they went and brought food and care to Christians who were in prison. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And then he says this, Therefore, don't throw away, this is, this is Hebrews 10.35, don't throw away your confidence which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come without delay. But my righteous one will live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So do not be ashamed when you suffer for the name of Christ, but glory. You have to see The glory and your inheritance when Christ returns, when you bear the name of Christ. You'll never get on the other side of eternity and say, Yeah, yeah, I know I was saved, but God was unfair with all that suffering I did. (laughs) You'll never say that. In fact, you'll sing for all eternity about the grace of God that was so unfair. You deserved hell and Christ drank your hell on the cross. We will we'll sing of His grace and His mercy. So let us not grumble and complain now. Let us have eyes of faith to see what God has done for us. All right, now we go into warp speed. Number seven, when you suffer temporarily under the... Refi- our. When you suffer, know that it is the refining fire of God for your good. Look at what he says. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does it mean that for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God? To be just really clear and to the point, So we can move on to the next point. What it means is this. Is right now, you want to know who judgment is falling upon? The church. Like a refining fire, God in his love is refining us from one degree of glory into another. We got such a good father, he will never fail in discipline. Like a derelict father Does, like we so often do as fathers, judgment begins in the household of God. Because, in one sense, we are saved. We're already children of God, 1 John 3 1 through 3. But in another sense, what we're to be has not yet been seen. So sometimes Paul talks about being saved, meaning, yes, you're justified the moment you believe, you're found not guilty, but sanctification process, becoming like Christ, is a process throughout our life. Glorification is when we're just like Christ. So in a sense, we're being saved as we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And if that surprises you, just listen to how the Bible says this the language uh, they use i 'm um, trying to find where I got that text well it's coming up and you'll you'll get it <laughs> so When we suffer, we must realize it's never in vain. It's always a refining purpose in our life. It's always for our good. God is sovereign over every circumstance and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love Christ and are called according to His purpose. None of it is in vain. None of it is by accident. And then he says, and if judgment starts with the household of God, speaking of Christians, we're not surprised Peter calls Christians household of God because he's already called us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. So that's just a term for Christians. Judgment begins with Christians, not under his wrath, but his refining fire. But then he says, what will come? If it begins with us, if God is so just, he doesn't even let his own people just, ah, who cares about their sin? No big deal. What's going to come for those who don't know Christ? And that's point eight. When you suffer temporarily, have pity on the unsaved who will suffer eternally. And that's going to be hard because a lot of your suffering is going to come from those people. Let me say that again. When you suffer temporarily, have pity on the unsaved who will suffer eternally. When Christ returns, that's a good day for you and that's a good day for me and it won't be a good day for your persecutor. So love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you like christ said have pity and have grace don't have anger and slander that shines nothing when christians slander and in anger and in bitterness point out the flaws of nonbelievers there's no light being shown for the gospel and there's a total forget forgetfulness that we would be them apart from the grace of God. So let us have pity on the lost in our suffering. And then he says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And the question we have, what does it mean if the righteous is scarcely saved? I thought I was secure in Christ. Well, I think it's a poor translation. It would be better if the righteous is in with difficulty saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. That word means with difficulty. Uh, I'm trying to see if I have an example of it being used that way. In Acts 20, 27 7, we read, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Nidus. It was a difficult trip. That's the point. It's the exact same word. So, as Christians, we ought not be surprised at our difficulty because it's with difficulty that we will be saved. And how difficult will it be under the eternal wrath of God for the ungodly and the sinners? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? You might say, why doesn't it say believe the gospel? Well, because the invitation to the gospel is also a command, isn't it? Repent and believe is a command. And for those who are saved... We say Jesus Christ is Lord, meaning we want to obey Him. Our profession of faith is also a profession of I want to live in obedience to the King. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The last point, well, I guess I do want to point out Proverbs 11.31 is really close to First Peter 4.18. Proverbs 11.31 says, If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner, meaning in the future. So this idea has always been there. God refines His people. And judgment will ultimately come on the wicked, even if it looks like they're not, they're getting away with it now. Final point. When you suffer, do good, remembering God is great, good, great, and wise. Look at what he says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, when we see God is sovereign over our suffering, we, we continue to do good. If we begin to think God's not good, He doesn't love me and He's not wise, that's when we say, you know what, I'm just going to pour myself into sin in light of these circumstances which are difficult. God is good and He is great and He is wise And that is a colossal mountain that we must climb every morning we wake up in a fallen world to believe by faith. To look at your circumstances and say, God is good and He's great and He's wise in light of these circumstances requires supernatural faith to believe it. So, let me close with a prayer that was penned by D.A. Carson in light of this text. Let's pray. O Lord God, we do not want to romanticize suffering, but as we read of brothers and sisters in the church around the world who face much greater challenges and suffering for the sake of Christ than we do. We hold them up in prayer before you now. We think of perhaps 2 million who have suffered in in the Sudan, of the Karen people in recent years in Burma, of those who suffered on some of the Indonesian islands of the Nigerian brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer at the hands of the Fulani and of Boko Haram. We think of the total, total, totalitarian regimes of various stripes, regimes that react sometimes violently to any claims of the sovereign Lord Jesus. We ask that somehow by Your Spirit You will give these people and these places, how dare we ask it, joy in their afflictions, steadfastness, glory, bearing witness, because in their suffering they thus align themselves with King Jesus. And in our small corner, Lord God, where most of our suffering for the near future is likely to belong to the realms of insults and not much more, to minor legal difficulties, grant that instead of whining and asking where our inherited culture has gone, we may rejoice because we too are beginning to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We thank you for the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ in His body, the church. And we ask that we may do our share for Jesus' sake, amen.